Good morning. My name is Stuart McCray. I have the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors and is just delighted to bring God's word to you this morning. We're, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 6, uh, we're about in the middle here. Uh, what we call the Sermon on the Mount is uh, Jesus' sermon in the Gospel of Matthew from chapters 5 through 7. We, we've entitled this series the, the King's Manifesto. This is the greatest sermon ever preached. And so we're, we're Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 19. If you'll follow along, let's, uh, let's read this together. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The, the king's manifesto, the, these, are, these are policy statements given by the, the king of heaven himself, and, and they describe what it looks like for kingdom citizens to live the kingdom life here and now. But we're not going to do that perfectly, so the Sermon on the Mount is also sort of an ongoing self-assessment. Listen, if you're hearing the Sermon on the Mount and aren't personally convicted, if, if you are continually thinking, you know, this would be really good for so-and-so to hear, you might be in that place that C.S. Lewis called a deadly spiritual condition. Lewis describes the Sermon on the Mount as a sledgehammer that, that ought to knock you on your back. He says this, I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a person who can read the Sermon on the Mount with tranquil pleasure. Each policy statement, as it were, that, that we hear should rock us back, and it should remind us that we're not there yet, we don't look like this, but that we're called to press into the kingdom life here and now by the empowering uh, help of the Holy Spirit and an ongoing repentance. Now, arguably, one of the primary policy statements that we read in the Sermon on the Mount is, is found in our passage. This, this actually has effect on everything else that we hear in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 24 says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God in money. Money, money and possessions, chief concerns for Jesus. 16 out of the 38 parables that he taught dealt with money and possessions. These things have a way of taking over our lives and redirecting our priorities. And really our engagement with these things hasn't, hasn't really changed over the years. I mean, if anything, here in America, the danger is more prevalent as there's generally more affluence. But look, here, here it is. What is true for them then is true for us now, and that there is temptation to serve, devote, worship, trust, love in things other than God. 
because of remaining sin in our hearts, there is a temptation towards divided loyalty. But, but Jesus says it cannot be. Our passage is wrapped up in verse 24. And again, considering the context of this being the, the, the king giving his manifesto for Christian living, I think we could, we could articulate the main point of this passage like this. Kingdom citizens are to have an unwavering loyalty to the king and his kingdom. Or we could say it personally, say it more personal. As a kingdom citizen, you must have an unwavering loyalty to the king and his kingdom. This passage's organization is that verse 24 is the main point. And then verses 19 through 21 and 22 through 23 serve as two diagnostics to, to show us where our loyalty lies, with God or with something else. Listen, brothers and sisters, Jesus wants to address you this morning and call you to repentance where you have divided loyalty. All right, well, with 24 being the main point, we're actually gonna start there, and then we'll go back up and look at verse 19 through 21 and 22 through 23. So let's reread verse 24. This is the call for loyalty. Let's reread it. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this isn't modern-day bosses. We, we can... We can actually work for more than one boss at the same time and have loyalty to both of them. You, you, know, you can go to one boss, say, I've got this amount of time for you. When I'm with you, I will be totally loyal to you. And you go to the other boss, say, here's, here's the remaining time. When I'm with you, I'll be totally loyal to you. This is not modern day bosses. This is, this is the, the paradigm here is ancient Near Eastern master-slave relationship. A slave can only serve and can only have one Master. Masters have different agendas, priorities, desires, and, and so they require total loyalty, wholehearted devotion. Now, what's more, Jesus is, is leveraging the culture to teach about a spiritual dynamic. The inability that Jesus is ultimately referring to, it runs deep into our hearts, as we'll discover when we get to verse 21. So this isn't a pragmatic issue that can be resolved through pragmatic means. This is a heart issue. It is only resolved through repentance and faith. Listen, God won't accept divided loyalty from his kingdom citizens. God himself says, I am Yahweh, this is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. The King Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. Now, most Bibles, your Bible probably also, has money footnoted as literally meaning mammon. Mammon is an Aramaic word that means something in which one trusts. Something in which one trusts. And as scholar G.A. Carson notes, eventually, no doubt, because man's confidence is so often deposited in riches, the word became uh, to refer to all material possessions, profit, wealth, money, materialism. This is why the majority of our translations here have money, because money and possessions are, are very symbolic 
of what our hearts often put trust and confidence in. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus actually slightly morphs this word mammon to personify it. In other words, Jesus is saying what your heart trusts in, other than God, what your heart trusts in is your false God, is your functional idol. One of God's chief concerns throughout the Bible, and it, and it proves to be true as the prevailing issue, one of God's chief concerns throughout the Bible is that his people would turn away from worshiping him and turn to worshiping false gods. Idolatry. This concern is summarized in the first three commandments and the Ten Commandments. So Jesus here is creating a showdown, if you, were, if you will. God versus mammon. God versus everything. And, and like Joshua before him, Jesus is calling us to loyalty. Here's what Joshua said, and Jesus is saying the same to us. He's calling us to loyalty, to fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. And if it is evil in your, si your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Which false god will it be then? Now maybe the question is, what concern is this for those who are already slaves of Christ? Is this addressed to you and I? Yes, it is. Jesus is talking to his disciples, calling them to ongoing loyalty. This is the tension of, of what we call the already and not yet. Here's what I mean. You are already a slave of Christ, but you do not yet live like that all the time. And nor will you this side of heaven. Because of remaining sin in our hearts, we, we often choose to live like we are still slaves to sin, functionally trusting in false gods, the, the very ones that we've already been freed from. A after an entire letter, uh, 105 verses on the importance of a genuine relationship with Jesus, the Apostle John uh, closes what we call 1 John. He closes his letter by warning believers, keep yourselves from idols. Replacing God in our hearts with counterfeit gods is a real and present danger for believers. So Jesus is calling his, his kingdom citizens. He, he's calling those who are trusting in Jesus to an ongoing loyalty, an ongoing trust in him and his kingdom. This is important, so before we transition to the diagnostics, this might be a new concept for you. Maybe hearing about idols of the heart, heart idolatry, maybe this is new for you. Maybe it's not, and so this will be a review. But we can't move on until we have a concept of this. Broadly, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your heart. Broadly, an idol is anything that takes the place of God in your heart. An idol of the heart is anything you love more than God, trust more than God, fear more than God, or desire more than God. Now listen, see, our, our heads may say, God is first in my life. 
but our hearts often get pulled and tugged in different directions, tempting us to find comfort, hope, security, or trust in other things than God. Right, right, our, 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 our Sunday theology doesn't always match up with our Tuesday application. Idols, idols seek to dangerously lure us into the death hook of finding in them what can ultimately only be found in God. The, the deception, the, the lure, the, the, the death hook of our heart idols is that often what we idol after are good things in and of themselves. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have your children obey you, to get the promotion, to provide for your family, to find a spouse, to have a home, to be respected, to have good health, to have future financial security. There's nothing wrong with having money. In and of themselves, none of these things are bad things. The, the, the breakdown occurs when, when we take ostensibly good things and make them ultimate things. You, you see, when we, take, when we take ostensibly good things and make them ultimate things, they become the ruling interest in our hearts. They become our counterfeit gods. And our idols are dangerous. Paul tells Timothy it is through this craving, idolatry of money, particularly here, that some have wandered away from the faith. Because of remaining sin in our hearts, all of us, all of us, you and you and you and me are in danger of functionally replacing God with some counterfeit God. John Calvin has famously has said that the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is from his mother's womb expert in inventing idols, he says. Maybe it's desiring the approval of man over the approval of God. How far are you willing to go? What, what ethic are you willing to compromise to, to, to gain the approval of others. Maybe it's valuing your identity as such and such over your identity as a child of God. Maybe it's in a difficult situation trying to find comfort in a bowl of ice cream instead of finding it in the God of all comfort. Maybe it's when anxious, trying to experience peace from the distraction of entertainment rather than experiencing peace from the God of peace. Maybe it's trusting in a political party over trusting in King Jesus. Maybe it's having a greater sense of security from your bank account than in the sovereign God of the universe. It's interesting to consider that it is from this call to loyalty that Jesus in the next passage will command us, therefore, that's, that's, a, that's a logical connection, as a result of having loyalty in the king of his kingdom, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious 
Don't be anxious, in other words, is a reasonable command for those who have an unwavering loyalty to the king and his kingdom. You see, if, you're, if your trust is in the sovereign creator of the universe, you, you ultimately have nothing to worry about. You see, Jesus tells us that look, apart, from, apart from maybe a medical diagnosis, anxiety is a spiritual indicator for where you've put misplaced faith, where your divided loyalty lies. When our, when our idols get messed with, we can get anxious and maybe fearful, maybe angry. More on that next week. Okay, let's, let's seek to make this transition now. Jesus calls his kingdom citizens to loyalty, and now he gives us two diagnostics to evaluate our loyalty. The first is, where are you investing? Where are you investing? Let's reread verses 19 through 21. Jesus says, do not lay up. This is the command for ongoing loyalty. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up. This is another command, again, calling for ongoing loyalty, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For, and this is the reason for obedience, because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, treasures on earth can certainly be money and possessions. If, if your mind went to, you know, uh, buried treasure, it's not wrong. It's just more fundamental than that. Treasures on earth are the things here that you prize, value, that give you a sense of worth or security. Treasures on earth are the things here that, that consume your attention and, and, and tug at your emotions. It can be things like clothes, your cars, your home, your gadgets, your toys. Now, thinking about the previous passages that we've talked about, the, the hypocrites wanted was to accumulate the praise of man. So it's also things like the approval of man, your reputation, your, your looks, your intelligence. Look, there's nothing wrong with having a house, cars, and a 401k. Disloyalty to God, listen, disloyalty to God occurs when you find your identity, value, worth, security, hope in things and in people and not in God. Let's think of it like this. What, what is it in your life, other than God, what is it in your life when, when, when things go, get, uh, start going sideways where, where you can be tempted to think, it's okay because I've got this over here. It's gonna be okay. That might just be your earthly treasure. Now, Jesus doesn't say, don't treasure anything. Jesus says, treasure the right things. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven incorruptible, never fading treasures in heaven. What is that? Heavenly treasure is certainly personal salvation. Our, our ultimate treasure in heaven is God himself. We can think about the parable of the treasure hidden in the field where this, this man, he finds treasure in a, in a field, he goes, he sells everything he has to go and buy that field to gain that treasure. That treasure is eternal life. It's being with and enjoying God forever. But heavenly treasure is also everything that can be done 
to the praise and glory of God alone. It's personal obedience and holiness of character. It's the work of disciple making. It's being missionally minded. It's caring for the poor, the fatherless, and the needy. It's supporting just causes. It's loving others sacrificially with a gospel orientation. It's meeting others' physical and spiritual needs. It's persecution and suffering for the name of Jesus. It's as Paul says, whether you eat or, or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's everything that can be done to the praise and glory of God. And family, here's the reason why this is important. Jesus tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the diagnostic to determine where our heart loyalty lies. With, with God or with mammon? Treasure on earth or treasure in heaven? Now, now why heart loyalty? Because our, our hearts, it's the reason, it's the cause for why you do what you do and think what you think and love what you love and hate what you hate. It's the cause and reason for all that you do. And so to determine what you treasure, what you love, what you trust, what you value is to diagnose where the loyalty of your heart lies. So here's the deal. Where the treasures of this earth hold sway over your heart, God does not. We, we could take Jesus' diagnostic and ask it in questions like this. Where are your affections drawn to? Where is your energy and attention given? Where are your priorities? Where do you find greatest satisfaction? Where do you derive value? Where are you investing your, your whole being, your heart? Where is your Treasure. This is, these are the introspective questions that ask, who am I serving? God or mammon? Look, we're, we're always, you are always worshiping, serving, trusting, loving, obeying something or someone. It will either be the things of this world or the God of this world. One will capture your heart and rule your life. And so if we're not vigilant about detecting our idols and destroying them, that which you think you control will be controlling you. Now, listen, we, we can't find freedom by simply identifying our idols, nor, nor can we find peace through pragmatic strategy. As we said earlier, this is a heart issue it is only resolved through repentance and faith. And there is grace from King Jesus here. There is grace from King Jesus to repent, to turn away from our counterfeit gods and to trust in him, serve in him loyally. Again, there's grace to do this, friends. 
But Jesus' first diagnostic for where your loyalty lies is where are you investing your heart? Earthly treasure, heavenly treasure, God, mammon. The next diagnostic is found in 22 through 23. How do you view your resources? Let, let's reread these verses. The, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? All right, you, you are not alone if you read that and you have no idea what Jesus is talking about. You are in good company. This is a difficult passage. There, there is understanding difficulty here that, that, that spans time and culture, and it's not gonna be easy to traverse without the help of historians. The eye, like a lamp, is the source of light for us, right? I mean, you close your eyes, you're in darkness, right? So in one sense, that's sort of the imagery that's going on here, but there are some metaphorical things that are going on. The eye is your, is your view, it is your perspective on things. Light in the Bible is often used to describe what is good, righteous, the things that are of God, things that please God, darkness, exact opposite. Now your eye is bad, believe it or not, is an idiom used in the Bible, but that's often relegated to footnotes. An example of this is in Matthew chapter 20, this is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. This is a parable about salvation. And the, the deal is you've got a bunch of different workers who all get paid the same thing no matter how long they, they worked. And so it is with believers. All believers gain the same reward of heaven no matter how long they've been trusting in Jesus. The, the, the issue here in the parable comes at the end in verse 15. The workers who work the longest are a little bit upset about this dynamic, and so they start complaining to the landowner. And in verse 15, the landowner responds and says this, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge envy? Are you jealous over? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now the footnote in the ESV, you probably have a footnote too in your Bible. The footnote in the ESV is, instead of, or do you begrudge my generosity, is, is your eye bad because I'm good? There it is. Is your eye bad because I'm good? In your sermon notes, I gave you some other examples that you can see in the Old Testament, a uh, place in Deuteronomy that actually uses it, another place, Proverbs, that again, it relegates it to the footnotes. Bad eye, evil eye, is an ancient world idiom for Greediness, jealousy, and stinginess, especially in relation to material possessions. You see now, if, if mammon or earthly treasure had some room for expansion for our understanding, here Jesus is absolutely zeroing in on our money and possessions. Now, what, what is a healthy eye? In context, this is the contrast to the bad eye. So it means something like generosity, contentment, and open-handed. Uh, that said, the word healthy also literally means singleness, or single-minded, if you will. So let, let's, let's put this together. This is, this is not as bad as maybe it first seemed. Let's, let's put this together. If, you're, if your eye is bad, then your perspective on your possessions is as earthly treasure to collect, to hoard, mine. 
You'll be greedy, prone to jealousy, and apt to being stingy with your money and possessions. But if your eye is healthy, then your perspective on your possessions will be singularly as heavenly treasure. In other words, all your possessions will be seen as on loan from God and to be used as he sees fit for his causes and his people. You'll be generous, content, and open-handed with your money and possessions. So here, here is Jesus' diagnostic for trying to determine where your loyalty lies. Let me, let me sum this up in some, some questions for us to consider. Are you more stingy or generous with your possessions? As you assess your generosity for giving to the local church, the charities, to people in need, are you more calculated in those things than you are in your budget for personal vacations, entertainment, wardrobe? Look, you're probably not stingy across the, the board, but in what area of your life or with what can you be tempted towards stinginess? It, it's possible that therein lies your area of disloyalty. Now friends, don't, don't think that I wrote such things just for you. This has been an ongoing wrestle for me throughout the week as well. Here's some more questions. Are you greedy or content with what you have? Are you always looking for the next purchase? Is there something off limits if someone asks to use or borrow? Is there something off limits even if, if God were to make known that he had use of it? Who gets the final decision with your possessions? Jesus says that the way that you view your money and possessions is an indicator for where your loyalty lies, with, with him or with mammon. Maybe as you assess, you're, you're starting to think, maybe I'm a bit more greedy than I thought. Maybe I'm a bit more on the stingy side. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is, is encouraging the church in Corinth. This is, a, this is a notoriously messed up church, but he's encouraging them to be generous in their giving. And he does it like this in verse 9. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. The generosity, the generous grace of our King and Savior is that he got off the throne and condescended, came to earth, sinful flesh, so he can make a way for you and I, through faith in him, to be freed from our slavery to selfishness, to greediness, to jealousy, be freed to serve him alone. There is grace in the gospel to repent. There is grace to move from greediness of heart to generosity of heart. This is the king's manifesto. This is what it is to live 
is what is it look like to live in the kingdom of heaven. One day we will, and it will be perfect. Our loyalty will be totally undivided and for God alone. But that's not the way it is now. This is the tension mentioned of already and not yet. We, we are already, if you're trusting in Christ, you are already a slave of Christ, but you do not yet live like that all the time. Because of remaining sin in our hearts, we're prone towards disloyalty to God. We're prone towards replacing God with counterfeit gods. We're prone towards investing our hearts in earthly treasure. We're prone towards viewing our stuff selfishly. And so the king graciously calls us as kingdom citizens to have an unwavering loyalty to him and his kingdom. This is an ongoing reorientation. This is an ongoing daily reaffirmation of our loyalty to King Jesus over mammon. Listen, brothers and sisters, only God can provide us all that we long for in the idols we go after. God is so much better than our idols. Idols eventually make a sacrifice for them, either yourself or others. Jesus is the only one who died for you. God is the only one who can freely offer you true peace, satisfaction, hope, security, freedom, love, value, worth, dignity. He's the only one that you do not have to work for to gain approval. We can't do this on our own. We need his help. And it's like the psalmist, we need to cry out, unite my heart, God, to fear your name. By God's grace, let's together be kingdom citizens who have an unwavering loyalty to the king and his kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the truth and the call of this passage. By your grace, you are, you are, you're trying to arrest our attention to dislodge the, the idols of our hearts and to call us back to worshiping you alone. How oh, the, the only one where we will find ultimate satisfaction and longing for our hearts. Help us to be eager to want to think on these things, not move past quickly through what we've been studying, what we've been hearing from you. Would we be eager to consider where in our heart there is disloyalty, knowing that you are eager to give us grace, grace to repent, to turn away from those things and turn to you once again. We give you thanks. You are worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.